Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Alexi Logunchuk of Sidera Labs. Alexi boasts a wealth of experience in and around the alternative data sector, which makes him a fascinating conversation partner, particularly on the subject of alternative data in private markets, where he has focused much of his attention in recent years. Separately, join us on Zoom on Wednesday for the Alternative Data Weekly Interactive, where Tracy Shumpert of the FISD and Sarah McKenna of Sequentum will be leading a conversation around standardization in alternative data. And check out my blog post on building the data mosaic using alternative data. Links are in the podcast details. Sure. Um, so going all the way back to before old data really existed, um, back in my own college days, which was a very, very long time ago, um, I used to be very much into something which at the time was referred to as data mining. Um, and which is looking for opportunities to lever the general skills of the, this, uh, the, the idea of applying um, complex data sets and EDA exported data analysis to the business problems over the years. Um, about a decade ago, I launched a business which basically just aimed to go out and find really amazing kids uh, doing uh, incredible research just in their spare time while in university. And um, a few of the students I came across were applying what I had kind of known as data mining, which was becoming known as data science at the time, towards financial markets. Um, initially, it was all around NLP and looking at sentiment, but slowly there were other use cases that were emerging. And long story short, I helped connect a few of these students with some of the first hedge funds that were exploring applications of data science to fundamental investing. And uh, yeah, um, then just started trying to help these funds figure out, and these kind of students, these, these former students in, in most cases at that point, um, figure out how to marry these two very different disciplines, data science and uh, fundamental investing. Um, in that context, I ended up co-founding uh, a community called Augvest together with Matthias Trianu, who now runs an old data community, uh, an old data consulting firm called System2. And Matei Zatriano, who's been on the pod and was extremely good um, as a as a guest. So, yep, friend of the podcast. Uh, and a good friend of mine, although I'm not sure his wife likes me that much. I've taken him to the gym a few times and he's popped blood vessels at least twice that I know of. So, um, he strikes me as a, as a, as a high achiever. Um, and so, yeah, I can, I can imagine pushing the, pushing it in the weight. Um, so yeah, for sure. It, it was more the handstand pushups that really did him in, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, great guy. I'm a very big fan of his. Um, and yeah, uh, he and I, the, the way we came together was we were both having coffee with a few folks who had, um, done some data science um, in investing and previously, prior to that. And we were very much talking to the same people. And instead of both of us having these like monthly, my monthly coffee chapters that just combine our Rolodexes and bring these people who we all knew to be, you know, top caliber, really interesting uh, people who just also were thought leaders in the space, would bring them together every now and then and just talk about things that were topical. And that was August. Um, and then over the years, um, Augvest kind of became a platform for me to explore applications of data to invest in, not only in, the, in public markets, but also in privates. So private equity, VC, growth equity, real estate, et cetera. So broadly speaking, you've been in and around the alternative data space since the start of the last decade um, and in various ways, consulting, advising, mixing with, talking to uh 
players and hedge funds and various types of funds um, yep. around using alternative data and in investments. So you're you're well positioned to talk about it. Essentially, you've been doing it for a long time. Yeah, and I will actually add is my particular area of expertise is building out these kinds of reference greenfields. So when you have a team of 20, 30, 50 people that's looking to do a slightly better job doing data sourcing or screening or, or testing, that's usually where, frankly, I, I'm not quite as interested in getting involved. Where I've really found engagements to be most fruitful and also most interesting is when you're talking about firms that have never done data before, that are just really beginning to lay the groundwork conceptually on how they would approach the space. So let's where so you've watched the development of alternative data in investment broadly in the, in yep. its widest possible phase. Is there anywhere that you would see as being somewhere that alternative data has come and gone? Is there anywhere that you would see as being an area where they alternative data has found a home and it's found usage but that has already been either competed competed out of the market or turned out to be actually not the right place for it is there any is there a dead alternative data space i'm not sure we characterize it as dead in that there are still vendors selling data and getting paid money for it um but i think the general idea of using uh, some of the more popular data sets to just now cast so to basically predict revenue announcements going to uh, quarter ends. Um, I think that play at this point is is so uh, well played out um, that I, I would be very surprised to see much alpha uh, left in, in putting up strategies. Even, I think, going back three, four years, um, I had a friend who, uh, at one of the multi-manager platforms. His whole strategy was actually going short surprises. Just, let's say if uh, um, street consensus is that the company is going to to beat uh, estimates, and then uh, the data is saying that actually it's going to be slight underperform a quarter. Um, the person would actually go along this quarter because he would be betting on the street being positioned too heavily um, in anticipation of that uh, that that miss. Um, and that strategy actually worked well. So I think at this point, if you were to try to bet now, years after that was the case. Um, that would kind of be uh, ineffective. But that's not to say that there is not still a massive amount of alpha extracted, even in public markets. Just I think what it requires is um, a more careful, a more thoughtful location of data and fundamentally just a, an openness to exploring um, more complex KPIs rather than just defaulting the top line. You're talking about, um, I think you're talking specifically about hedge funds when you're when you're describing this kind of the fact that where there was alpha, where there was possible a few years back or a number of years ago to um, to call the quarter using alternative data. Now that competitiveness is gone. Um, two questions around that. Sure. Firstly, those are the the ones that you're talking, the investors you're talking about are the most sophisticated and fastest moving. Is it possible that? Um, instead of gone, it's just it's diffused to a slightly slower pace of investor who who do see the world in that way, and 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 actually it's linked to the second question, which is uh, was is gone the wrong word, and actually it's table stakes is that is that everybody has to do it in order to survive in the market, and if you don't have that data, then you then you can't have an opinion basically. Yeah, I think my personal bias is that to me value alpha comes down well 
I, I equate value to alpha. So it means something that is table stakes doesn't necessarily represent much of an edge, doesn't necessarily, frankly, uh, isn't that would personally be interested in if I was running a fund committing capital to. But having said, I, I do think that certainly talking to LPs, um, they more and more see some competence at the very least, if not expertise, around data to be a, a core requirement for any fund that would be committing capital to. So, yeah, I think it can be said that that's table stakes. Um, I don't think it's necessarily, again, going to actually make your fund perform better. Um, uh, and to your point on how long-term investors can still, I, I think, benefit, can still, can still make money, I would actually kind of split into two things. So one is, yes, they can. Um, and I, that's what I was alluding to by talking about creating, uh, looking at more complex KPIs. So let's say instead of looking at overall top line, looking at retention over time, looking for inflection points, uh, things of that nature. Um, and then the other area where there's still money to be made is in just being faster than the rest of the street. If you can analyze data uh, more quickly, more effectively, if you can spot issues that other market participants don't see, you can still make money off of these, some of these older data sets. But the play is quite different in nature. It's um, more akin to what I would, uh, I guess the parallel I would draw would be to high frequency trading. We have a few firms that are super mm. sophisticated. They're all competing for this, um, you know, uh, this alpha. Um, and I think for your average fund looking at a space, that's not really uh, a relevant playbook to consider. Mm. Okay. So that's public markets. Are we kind right. of right in saying that from your view, public markets is either a high fre frequency trading game equivalent or 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 done type thing it's it's you don't see that much opportunity in public markets anymore with alternative data on the contrary i think there is still an opportunity but where it really lies is in being able to do a very deep rich analysis of a certain name and then position yourself with an eye towards not a single quarterly results announcement but towards uh a longer term uh position in that case you can uh, deploy much more capital. You're not limited by liquidity quite as much. And ultimately, I think that's how you can still make, uh, frankly, a multiple amount of money you could have made, uh, even when all data was new, just calling quarters. So it's there in perhaps longer fundamental type. So a, uh, uh, an investor who is properly gets to know a stock. Like, I mean, I mean, uh, an example of a of a stock. Are you talking about the big, famous, you know, retail stocks, or are we talking about the the exciting new technology, which you know uh, needs to you need a, a biochemist to understand, or or, or all sorts? Uh, can you give an example of, of of the kind of thing you mean? I think yeah, all sorts would be a, a fair summary. But to be honest, I would kind of default to Mate. I think this has been his bread and butter uh, with System Two for for the past few years, and. His whole thesis um, that he launches into around was that there was value in doing these kinds of deep dives. And I think his firm's performance and the performance of their clients speaks to that. Um, to be honest, the past kind of year or two, I've been much more focused on private markets. So uh, can't really give any timely examples right now, but happy to come back with some notes. Not examples, but a type of uh, the type of thing you're talking about um, in terms of uh, how alternative data might be able to advise a longer term investor, what types of information they might be finding useful for that. Are you can you kind of you know pontificate or or you'd rather 
move on. No, I mean, again, I've I kind of alluded to what is usually my go-to illustration, which is looking at performance of the team cohorts for a given company. So let's say if you see that uh, the more recently acquired customers for a given firm tend to be less sticky than ones that um, it kind of went to went with previously, then it may be the case that the company's kind of reached um, the, the the end of a slightly kind of growth trajectory. And even mm-hmm. though that may take a while to become apparent in their overall top line, if you're somebody who's looking at again these more granular KPIs, then you can get that insight quite a bit earlier on to position yourself in anticipation of it. Now. That's something you can do with just credit card data on, on consumer names. Um, I know that there are much more sophisticated strategies, and uh, part of it as well is mm. being able to build a mosaic where you have multiple data sets that speak to different aspects of the business performance. Um, so, yeah, to me, it's that. It's having an understanding of what are the different pillars of a potential thesis with a name and being able to pick out different data sets that can really speak to those uh, pillars, risk factors. Um, uh, I think the Columbia Value Investing Program uh, refers you know, to this as uh, KIFs, key investment factors. Um, and yeah, I think there's still a lot of uh, innovation coming in that space. Okay. Brilliant. Okay. Let's go private markets then. So um, where is the, where, where do you, where's the most exciting area in the private markets that you're seeing right now for alternative data? Ah, so this is where I would kind of draw a line, if I may, between alternative data as it is seen and understood by public market participants and alternative data in kind of a, in a broader sense, um, you might call it alternative alternative data. Um, I think in terms of traditional alternative data, there are a couple of platforms emerging in early stage investing. So one that in in, um, in what investing? Sorry, in early stage investing. Early stage um, investing. Okay. So one that comes to mind would be Spectre, TriSpectre.com, and um, it's a pretty interesting play actually. Um, what they have is um, a pretty um, good just scraping operation under the hood. Um, and they're tracking a whole bunch of people. I think they, they have, they're tracking like LinkedIn profiles and, and social media feeds for about 6.5 million people. Um, using that in combination with a company tracker to figure out what are some people who are, uh, what are companies be served by people who are of interest? So they've worked with, let's say, top tier startups previously. Um, they're looking at company data in terms of fund histories, web traffic, app downloads. So, again, fairly, uh, in terms of traffic and app downloads, I think those are very familiar data sets to public markets investors. Mm. Um, and then there are some more interesting analyses. So, for example, they look at interactions on Twitter between VCs and founders and startups. So if there's a VC who's trying to sell or, or sweet talk a certain founder, they may like some of their posts or comment on them or, or try to connect with those founders in social media. And actually at this point, because a lot of these interactions are public, you can actually spot those engagements fairly early on. Fairly early on. It's interesting um, you put it. It's interesting you put it like that because it it strikes me um, that founders are the ones trying to attract the VCs. It's interesting that you're you're seeing it from the perspective of a VC trying to sweet talk a founder. I would have thought the the VCs have the money, and the founders are the ones looking for it, wouldn't they? Ah, that 
uh, opens up a, a whole uh, massive subject in its own right. So um, one of the, the things we're doing, so I'm, I'm, as I mentioned to you previously, I'm co-running a, a small uh, early stage VC where we're doing something quite different from what Spectre is doing. But we're actually in a, in a program run by um, SignalFire, which is one of the, the few truly data-driven VCs out there. And um, this program is just for, for emerging VC managers. And so we get to hear about what are the top of mind challenges for these managers. And probably the foremost one beyond just raising capital and all that good stuff is getting into, into rounds, getting into, into these deals. Um, the interesting thing is that there, because of the amount of capital that's sloshing about these in, in these markets, um, mm. if a company looks and kind of feels the way a typical VC play would look and feel like, you're probably going to have people kind of try to do everything possible to sell you on a check. I mean, um, it, it's a pretty interesting setup where uh, one of the things that Michael Fun and I found curious was, okay, so when you're trying to get into this round, how do you balance trying to sell the founder on taking a check and still doing proper due diligence? And the answer is people don't really seem to do the due diligence that much. They just <laughs> kind of assume that the lead investor has, has kind of done their job and the lead investor is somebody good, then they just fall in line. It's just shut up and take my money type thing. Exactly. Like that meme. <laughs> that, it's exactly what it is. And, and to us, like this is this is a fundamentally broken market. But the reason why this is just the way it is, is a, a big part of it is because Deal sourcing is kind of broken. Um, this is, sorry, we're beginning to get, go very much into the VC rabbit hole. I'm not sure if you want to maybe take a step back. Okay. Go on. I mean, well, well let's, let's pursue it for now. Okay. Um, so the, the, the issue that we've seen is um, the way that deals ultimately get surfaced in this industry um, tends to be very much network driven. So you have your, let's say, VC bubbles in SF, New York, Boston, US, um, and I'm, I'm sure there, there are um, there's a couple of bubbles in, in Europe. I know London is one. Um, actually, Stockholm has been a, a surprisingly interesting uh, center of innovation. Um, and if you're a VC operating one of those hubs, then you have friends who have friends who are starting companies, and that's a big chunk of your deal sourcing engine. If you have somebody in a flyover state or in an Eastern European country who is doing some pretty good work um, and they're putting out a product that has a crappy website, but the customers really, really like it, um, the person either doesn't speak English well or has never taken, has never done an MBA program, so doesn't know how to put together a pitch deck. Um, if they were to try and approach VCs, they would lack the credentials and the network to get noticed. And you know the VC took a took a, a chance and um, you know looked at their website, looked at their product. Um, in most cases, these just would not be very sexy companies. And so the only really good way to to source these kinds of deals is by, in some way, kind of spotting uh, the the product market fits, uh, spotting the traction these customers have. Um, the that these companies have. The challenge is that if you're trying to do this at the early stage, so not you know Series A, Series B, but really before these companies got any funding, they're still bootstrapped, they're still just getting just again getting at the ground. Um, then these companies are far too small to be picked up by any widely available old data source. 
So let's say for context, um, SimilarWeb doesn't, uh, which is the go-to, I think, um, web traffic data provider. They have, I think, a valuation last to check for about one and a half billion dollars. Yeah. Um, they don't even track uh, websites that have on average less than 5,000 sessions a day by their estimate. Um, by our estimate, um, 97% of companies with revenues uh, sub $1 million um, have below 2,000 sessions a day. Mm. Um, so if you're talking about, again, companies that are still young and scrappy and are in dire need of capital, they're going to be entirely missing in similar web. Um, maybe for, for a couple of percentage points, but... You need some kind of alternative data which will demonstrate in a few but incredibly happy customers you know, the, the beginnings of a really good experience of some sort, no matter what the company, but the, 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 the few people who are using you already are like saying, wow, this, this, this thing's awesome. Perhaps some kind of sentiment analysis of, of what people are saying about this, this new fledgling company online. Um, so that's when we can go. I think that's one of the directions that this Spectra can allow VCs to, to go in. But we view that as a fairly noisy predictor. So if somebody just happens to have a, a bunch of friends whom they onboard and, mm. the, and the friends are gushing about it, that doesn't simply mean the, the product is, is really good. Um, conversely, if they have a whole bunch of customers who are happy and a, and a subscriber and not terribly vocal about it, um, or customers who just aren't on social media, uh, maybe this is uh, a B2B business opposed to B2C and people aren't going to be going on their company's accounts saying, hey, we love this new product. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a lot of things that would fall through the cracks if you if you'd apply that. And yeah, I think broadly speaking, the, the real issue is that what you're talking about is a soft predictor. I think there are a lot of soft um, or maybe just what I would refer them to them would be a weak predictors within VC. So, for example, um, somebody previously worked at a top tech company. Somebody uh, previously, you know, the founder is a, is an Ivy League alum or an Oxbridge alum. Um, the founder previously exited the business. There is a, a whole bunch of these kinds of predictors that speak to the likelihood of a, a company succeeding, but they don't necessarily actually capture that. Again, what we really care about in this case would be product market fit. Um, mm. So, yeah, for us, the, the hack we found is that my co-founder and I were able to uh, pull together a kind of coalition um, of not data vendors, but uh, market participants who have access to uh, first-party data. So we have full access to, yeah, the, the data for all these companies. And so instead of trying to find what do you mean? Sorry. What do you mean by first party data? So, so as in the, so uh, data from the inside. So, so, um, yeah. Okay. Sorry. So the data that they're seeing about themselves rather than the data, which has been, um, sold online on the, or is available on the market. Exactly. Yeah. So there are a couple of nuances here. So one is you can't do this in public markets because this would be inside information. Um, number two, you can't sell this data. So if you're, let's say, a VC or just an investor who's looking to get this kind of data, you can't go out on the market and buy it because if these companies were seen to be selling this data, they would be out of business tomorrow. Um, the only way to probably commercialize it in this way is by forming very close partnerships with the owners of this data where you kind of own commercialization, let's say, within private markets investing. And it's a play that I think a few people have recognizes there, but I believe we're the first ones to actually 
act on it in VC. Um, I think in private equity... Is this based on exchange of information or is it a money transaction? Uh, exchange of information mm. and some shared economics. But to me, this sounds this sounds a little bit... It sounds like there's a reason that it's not okay in public markets is that it sounds like companies cozying, cozying up to each other a little bit and, and getting perhaps an unfair advantage against other companies which aren't part of this. And so it sounds a little bit... I don't know, a little bit suspect. Something the regulator, if they knew about it, um, may not be entirely happy about. So I, I agree with you. In public markets, this should not fly. But in private markets, I would say that this is the name of the game. This is part of the reason that I was drawn to it. And to mm-hmm. be clear, I, it's not because I am Russian mafia and all of that. It's just because <laughs> I think one of the really core differences between data in public markets and private markets is that if in public markets, there's data that you like, you pay a subscription fee, and uh, the data set, even if you can secure an exclusive to trial it or help develop it for a year or two or three for some egregious amount of money, at some point the data set will be public. It will be available for purchase to your competitors. In private markets, if you find a data set you like, you buy the company that's producing it. And then you own the data. Literally, you own the data. And mm. you can pretty much do whatever you want with it. Um, now, Unfortunately, I don't personally have the funds to go out and start buying up these kinds of companies uh, at this stage of my life. Uh, but I think there are other ways to structure it, to set up these relationships in ways that uh, amount to the same thing. Um, you're establishing shared economics, you're establishing alignment of interests, and ultimately you're allowing for this data to be commercialized in novel ways um, that companies themselves can pursue with available resources. So you become like a federation of companies in a way, like each part of this. I mean, do, do, would people is it is it clear to people outside this federation that it's it's happening, or is this is this all behind closed doors? Uh well, we're keeping our our secret sauce secret, um, just because we think there's still a bit more work to be done there. Um, in terms of growing federation, in terms of deepening relationships. Um, so yeah, for now, it's um, something we're not exactly being uh, very vocal uh, publicizing. Um, but yeah, when asked, we're happy to talk about kind of the, the broad strokes, how, how the setup is done. Do the big, the big fish in the pond that you're describing... Um, mm-hmm. Like so, we're talking, and we actually we should go on and talk about about private equity as well, um, and and real estate. I think is something that you want to talk about too. But uh, it's a thought that somebody said to me recently that actually the the big fish in this yep. in this kind of area actually might be the big tech companies. Um, it's it's not even necessarily financial. It's the it's the Facebooks and the Amazons, etc., who obviously have gigantic amounts of data, and mm-hmm. what you describe of I like the data this company has, so I'm going to buy it, is very easy for them. And they don't need to mm. really justify it, to, justify it to anyone. So in a way, they're the kind of big submerged islands, which are, which are like islands which, which turn out to be submerged whales type thing um, that are there in the, in the space. Do you, do you think that? Do you see that? Um, yeah, I think in terms of Facebook and let's say Google specifically, um, I've not seen necessarily make, make this kind of play. But um, so two areas where I've seen something like this emerge. Well, actually, I think it's probably more than two. But generally, when these firms launch financing solutions, it tends to be debt rather than equity. Um, and so an, a, a proto 
form of the creation I'm describing now that I was pursuing a couple of years back, I was trying to, uh, to establish, uh, would involve, let's say, reaching out to a company like QuickBooks and uh, even just setting up like shop within the organization, um, but just using their data to surface interesting lists of targets. That was more in the mid-market B uh, kind of side of things. Um, and what I found kind of interesting was right around the time when I was uh, trying to sell them on this idea, they announced the launch of a lending arm. Uh, now there is a QuickBooks um, kind of capital solution. Now, I think Shopify is doing something quite similar as well in the lending space. Maybe a launch finance solution for companies on the Shopify platform, I think, can be, can be quite interesting. Um, I think you're going to see more of it. You're going to see more and more instances of companies with access data beginning to build out complementary services, including lending. Um, having said that, I think the, there's still a lot more work to be done. And particularly on the equity side of things, um, I think one of the big drawbacks, one of the things that's holding back these larger companies from going down the equity path is it doesn't scale quite as neatly. You can build um, credit underwriting models and, and scale them quite easily, but with equity, there's always uh, a bit more uh, nuance to the valuations you're running. And so that's been a space that's it's been far slower to come off the ground. Um, I think you're seeing early examples of, uh, of that work um, in the Amazon, uh, kind of the FBA fulfillment by Amazon, DTC brand roll-up space. So Thrasy would be probably the, the poster child for that. Uh, but it's a very niche play. Um, it's been very popular, but again, I think it's fairly niche. And there is a much broader playbook, I think, to, to be realized there. Okay. Okay, brilliant. So let's get back on to familiar territory. Um, alternative data and private equity. Where do you see the potential there? We've kind of we've kind of touched on VC. What about what about PE? Sure. Uh, I think in PE, it's really unfortunate that you have all of these um, exception people trying to explain how to do data science to private equity guys because um, private equity companies, I should say. Um, I'm actually generally very big on promoting diversity in industry, and so apologies for that little slip just now. Um, <laughs> I think the issue is that in public markets, you have whatever the information the company gives you in its filings, you have a chance to talk to management every now and then, and that's pretty much the extent of it. You have some maybe expert uh, calls, um, but there are limitations to the kinds of insights you can get um, through just regular public channels. And if you have data sets, they, they enable you to ask questions that the company itself may be reluctant to answer in full, answer truthfully, etc. In private markets, if you have a question that the company has not answered yet, you ask the company to give you whatever they did you want. And fundamentally, I think if you look at a company like uh, 2.6, which I think has been, has been acquired by West Monroe, for them, all data historically hasn't really made sense in the context of company due diligence, just because there's no way that um, a series of third-party data sets will do as good a job describing the performance of the company as the company's own internal data. Isn't the idea, isn't the idea maybe that, so the, just to challenge that quickly, from a public mm. markets perspective, the idea is that the public markets, they're giving you the story that they want you to see. Um, and mm. so you're seeing the kind of, uh, I, I call it seeing you, Seeing in your Sunday best type thing, it's it's them exactly. looking all smart as as much as possible. Whereas alternative data, 
in theory, allows you to see inside the boardroom. You see what they're seeing, um, even though kind of warts and all, all the all the ugliness as well, which they try and try and maybe hide from you or disguise or you know, some, put it somewhere on the balance sheet or whatever. Um, yeah. But surely in the private markets, um, then private markets have even more ability to hide things from you because they're not forced to disclose anything. So you can go and make a request and they'll give you what they want to give you. But surely they, they have, they have secrets too, don't they? And, and, um, and don't you need to winkle out some, some truth from them as well? The impression I've gotten, so I haven't myself closed any multi-billion dollar PE deals, but the impression I've gotten talking to both PEs as well as service providers in the space is that um, that's actually, it's the opposite is usually true. It's usually much considerably uh, more straightforward in a context of a PE due diligence exercise um, to get management, to get these companies to go along and, and uh, cooperate with mm. your efforts to understand how they're doing. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of been my observation, there, generally speaking. There is, with PE, it's interesting, actually, with PE, because I've come across just um, in, in uh, I've come across examples when a company has been bought um mm -hmm. the whole thing has been bought and then the acquiring company actually it was a it was a corporate um mm. uh, acquisition but the acquiring company came back a year later and said actually we think we were missold this um because mm. the you know the the we weren't showing the whole picture or it wasn't it wasn't entirely clear and so has has um you know tried to claw back um, some of the money money spent from the from the from the people they they paid it to, um, so that is a risk. Even if the regulator isn't necessarily forcing you as a as a public entity to uh, to make yourself clear, the risk could be that it's better for a potential buyer to know everything now um, rather than try and chase you in the courts in a year or two's time. Sure, um, I guess the way I look at it tactically is that in a, in a situation like that, it was the acquirer's job, frankly, to know what questions to ask, what questions mm -hmm. would have spoken to the key innocent factors and the key risks for the acquisition when they were doing their, their deep dive. And if they had not received satisfactory answers to some of those questions, they simply should have made the investment. So mm -hmm. to me, a situation like that, what it speaks to is frankly just a, a failure on part of the, of, of the PE itself, more so than any uh mis again mis-selling part of the like the company mm -hmm. being acquired um okay. okay so but so from a so so what the case you're building was that alternative data doesn't necessarily have the same utility in private equity as it does on the public side because generally you can get hold of that information just by asking um yeah. and so what what utility do you see for alternative data so I think for all data in the classic sense, the primary benefit is competitive intelligence. So you're doing a deep dive into a company and you, have, you can get insights on some of their competitors um, and, and see how this company thinking of making investments in or acquiring is, is doing versus its peers. Um, to me, that'd be, that'd be a primary use case. Beyond that, um, I think the application of data science to PE is actually fundamentally different. And this is why I was kind of bemoaning the, 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 the frequency with which you see hedge fund, uh, all data models uh, being applied to PE. Um, the way I, I like to describe it is, 
if you're, let's say, using data science to help with, if you're using specifically old data to help with the diligence deep dive, so again, a direct parallel to what's done in public markets, in PE. Mm-hmm. So you're adding one chart to the slide deck um, to the notes being uh, discussed by the investment committee at, at the private equity firm. And um, it might be helpful. It, it could just be speaking to something that the company itself could have provided. Um, but even if it's novel information, um, it can be kind of tricky to disentangle um, your contribution to the ultimate investment from all of the work that other members of the analyst team or the IC have done. And so much the same problem that you see in fundamental markets all the time, where data scientists tend to tend to be marginalized uh, by PMs and analysts, and not necessarily given the the, the recognition they're due. Um, that's kind of one scenario. The other scenario is you're this data scientist who can who understands what makes this business tick, who can do hands-on data science work, and you go into this business once the investment has been made, and you do some fairly basic work, and you find a way to add one or two percent of the profit margin. In that case, it is very very clear that the PL attribution uh, is very straightforward. It's very clear how much value you've created for this business, and that in turn means that you're entitled to a certain kind of bonus. And probably if you've done this successfully for a few firms, your team should be getting quite a bit more more uh, operating uh, capital to to build up their capabilities. To me, a lot of PE firms seem to be graduating towards the former setup, um, whereas the latter is really where these efforts should begin. I do think that ultimately due diligence does have to play a role um, in kind of the way that data science operates within a PE firm. But it's more so about applying data expertise towards uh, doing deep dives on these companies' own exhaust data rather than, um, again, applying third-party data science. Okay, just to unpack that, the first usage, which is the, um, which is the most commonly talked about one, is a private equity firm trying to think of what company to buy um and yep. so using alternative data perhaps to say okay i'm interested in buying a you know i'm interested in buying a, a kombucha brand mm-hmm. um so why don't i use alternative data to see what has the best brand loyalty of all the kombucha brands and go and buy that um and you're saying that that is some of the least utility and actually the benefit is more buying the kombucha finding because you're good at private equity and you know what you're doing. And so using all your normal ways to, to find the right kombucha band brand to buy, I hope I'm saying kombucha right after all of this, but um, <laughs> buy the right kombucha band to, to buy. And then what you should be doing is using alternative data around or the exhaust data from that kombucha brand to make it stronger. So use it all the traditional forms of, of which McKinsey have been doing for, for, for many years of, of using the data of a company to improve its processes and understand its own customers and improve how it does its job. Um, and so that's what private equity should, should be doing more from that kind of consulting perspective almost rather than as a, as a deal creation or deal origination mechanism. Is that right? So there are Actually, a couple of things to unpack here. Um, so I was referring to what I was talking about uh, on mine was more so due diligence rather than deal sourcing. Um, so I think within due diligence, all data has limited utility. 
Um, just, 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 just to put it in the same terms, due diligence being that you've chosen which kombucha brand you want to buy, and then you want to know everything about it. So you go and look at all the alternative data as well as the traditional data in order to precisely. really understand whether you want precisely. it or not. Okay. Precisely. Um, so yeah, I think on the front, yes, it's far more valuable to go in and then actually make the company worth more. I would just note that um, even McKinsey, which I would argue has one of the actually most impressive business consulting practices in the street, even they haven't really been doing this for very long. So we're talking maybe five, six years at most um, in terms of using proper data science and consulting engagements and having a proper dedicated data science team internally. Um, so it's actually still a fairly novel field. Um, but yeah, in terms of actually deal sourcing, that is a whole separate subject. Um, so there is actually some value to be generated from um, from applying, I think, all data towards deal sourcing. The fundamental problem is that um, suppose you find the company with the very best characteristics is growing quickly. Um, it's just this runaway success story. And you're super excited and you said, okay, I want to go and buy this company. Great. You go talk to management and find out that they're not going to sell until they're further along, until they're closely getting to plateau, or they can sell, but a ludicrous valuation. And so deal sourcing is not quite as straightforward as some might think it is. There's always some conversion rate. There's always some kind of discount between the kinds of metrics people think to begin with and what is ultimately uh, predictive of whether or not these are going to be good investments or just viable investments at all. Um, I think there's still some work to be done, but it's more actually along the lines of what we're uh, doing with our um, kind of early stage VC. Um, I kind of, I think, previously touched on the fact that I think we're doing, we're the first ones to do our consortium um, kind of strategy within VC, but there's actually, I think, an existing play that's comparable within private equity. That play is CircleUp. And from what I gather, they have access to some fairly differentiated data as well um, that is not in wide use within public markets. Um, and there, it's not so much about just figuring out which companies are, are growing well. It's not quite so much about uh, these, again, very hollow metrics. It's more about um, specifically modeling out. So what I spoke about earlier was this idea of product market fit, uh, really modeling out which of these products um, are very strong and uh, plenty of uh, runway left to go. So, yeah, I think there is a play to be made there, but it's fairly particular and it's fairly challenging. Um, even when you're talking about smaller companies or early stage investing, I would also extend this by saying that as you go towards larger and larger businesses, as the available universe contracts, so if you're talking about buying a five, ten, twenty million dollar business, you're talking about probably tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of um, viable names. You're talking about investing a few billion dollars. The space shrinks considerably. At that point, just having a company surfaced by an old data engine doesn't actually do very much. Um, yeah. If you're a PE, you have bankers coming to you saying, oh, hey, these guys are thinking about potentially selling. Do you want to have a talk to uh, talk with them? Mm. Uh, I think that kind of deal sourcing um, 
again, when you're talking about regression P, is very, very hard to enhance or displace with, uh, with all data or even just data science in general. And um, another, another um, potential private equity route or, or alternative data consideration is, um, um, something we've talked about before, you and I, is the idea of buying a company in order to free its data stream in terms of, in, in order to buy a company in, and then selling its data as alternative data in order to monetize that, that revenue stream. Um, do you see that as a as a positive, as a as a as a viable route, as as a as a yeah as a as a particularly remunerative potential? I think we're talking about um, buying a company just to sell its data to hedge funds. I'm not sure that would necessarily be. Um, I don't think the economics would be particularly exciting in most cases. Having mm-hmm. said that, um, I do think that there are some interesting opportunities to create. Um, complementary businesses uh, to bolt on commercialization capabilities um, onto these uh, data companies. So, for example, one um, situation that um, I've been following has been the emergence of a data consortium led by a Hong Kong-based, um, I'm not sure if they're still referred to as a family office, but it's a consortium worth over $100 billion, uh, for which one of their flagship assets is a series of um, shipping facilities across Southeast Asia. So they form a consortium that basically pools uh, highly granular shipping data for, uh, I think, facilities accounting for something like 45, 50% of all global trade. Mm. And that may seem like a pretty cool data set if you're a public markets investor, but frankly, the economics and trying to sell it to the citadels and points and setting tools of the world, pale in comparison to what you can do trying to build, just as an example, uh, a trade financing business on top of it. Um, wow. I think by some estimates, there's about a trillion dollars in basically underfinanced trade uh, per year globally. Broadly speaking, what it, what, what it kind of, um, I think, represents is one example of, um, again, the kind of the kinds of businesses you can develop around data um, that can be very lucrative, that can certainly justify acquiring or getting stakes in these businesses. Um, that would be off the map for most people coming from a more traditional alt data background. Very interesting. Very interesting. Obviously takes a lot of takes a lot of capital and a lot of a lot of thinking and creativity and yeah, it's a it's a big undertaking, but it's very um very creative. So you think in a way the data could be the foundations of new companies. Um and actually rather than data being thrown off by companies and being put to use it's instead gather the data and build a company on it have we seen that before i mean you can view facebook and google as fundamentally data businesses their typical consumer facing platforms are an engine uh, that allows you to gather data on on their customers on 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 people and yeah surface content to them um i think a lot of uh, technological innovation still to come will arise from, yeah, markets becoming more savvy about ways to commercialize data. In terms of investing in particular, I think um, this idea, the popularization of um, online lending solutions um, using kind of novel. So, so, so for example, uh, one of the common things, one of the common trends you're seeing now in terms of, let's say, online lending applications 
is instead of having everybody fill out a 10-page application and talk to three agents and wait for, for two months, uh, just plug in your um, your uh, QuickBooks, plug in your Google Analytics, plug in a few more platforms that your, your company is using, and you get an automated quote uh, within like a few minutes. Mm-hmm. I think that, again, is just one of the, 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 the first reference points um, that speaks to what I expect to be uh, a long-term trend towards, yeah, the establishment of more and more, um, uh, more and more obviously data-centric businesses. And in some cases, yeah, they can be spun up around pre-existing data sets. I think, Alexi, that's a wonderfully interesting and big thought uh, for us to finish on. Um, I think we uh, we I've, we could we could go on for hours, really. I think, and we have previously offline. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think uh, I think we need to call a halt at some point. So, unfortunately, we haven't done real estate. We, we may have to. You may have to come back and do that another day. Um, but um, but I think this has been a really a really interesting. Uh, view into the into the private market side of things, which doesn't get as much as much attention with uh, with alternative data, or, or hasn't historically, I don't think. So, um, so yeah, thanks so much for for coming and sharing your view, and um, and yeah, you're, please do come back at some point. My pleasure, would love to. And uh, yeah, one thing I would note is that if there are folks um, that are interested in just comparing notes on the space. Much as you know, we like to do with with Augvest. Um, I'm always keen to yeah connect with people who are just curious about this. Um, it's been very gratifying in a few cases to have seen efforts emerge from what were just coffee chats and grow into full blown interesting teams. To the extent mm-hmm. you know, I can help make that happen uh, in more organizations. We'd always love to. Fantastic. So feel free to reach out to Alexi if if you'd like to have a chat. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Alexi. Good luck with it. Thank you.